Welcome to Site Selection Matters, where we take a close look at the art and science of site selection decision making. I'm your host, Rick Weddle, president of the Site Selectors Guild. In each episode, we introduce you to leaders in the world of corporate site selection and economic development. We speak with members of the Site Selectors Guild, our economic development partners, and corporate decision makers to provide you with deep insight into the best and next practices in our profession. In this episode, we have as our guest, Bob Hess, Vice Chairman, Newmark Global Corporate Services and Practice Lead for its Global Site Selection Platform. Today, Bob will talk with us about diversity and inclusion as a business imperative in corporate site selection. Join me today as we welcome Bob Hess to Site Selection Matters. Bob, we hear a lot today about the evolving importance of diversity and inclusion to business. Take a minute or two, if you will, to describe exactly what's meant by that when we reference diversity and inclusion as a corporate concern, and maybe how this issue has evolved over time. Thanks, Rick. Been looking forward to the the podcast today. It's um, a topic that's been part of my business life and my personal life for for many, many years, and uh, it has evolved over time. I mean, there's a, a really interesting temporal or time component to diversity. I mean, it was awareness back in the, I'll call it 70s and 80s, more from a business perspective, obviously the 60s, you had social movements, you know, to a concern, and then it moved into a business imperative, and then action, various levels of action, I think, that are starting. And of course, it's always been about talent, right? So this evolution of diversity has been about talent, uh, attraction, development, and retention. But it's, we've come at this talent issue from a diversity perspective you know, many different ways. And one of the issues that I think that's impacted diversity is, you know, boardroom directors and how important it is there. Back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it wasn't prevalent in the boardroom. It was left to boards to interpret this, but there really wasn't a lot of understanding of it in terms of how you measure it. And of course, fast forward to the 80s and the 90s, uh, I was actually part of a diversity initiative, which more than diversity initiatives came into play. Uh, in the 90s when I was at a big four firm. I was actually uh, a new partner and I was asked to lead the diversity initiative for about 2,500 people in a region of the country. Uh, it was one of the more wonderful honors of my life to be involved with that. And at that time, it was about, okay, the business case and making people understand the dimensions of diversity, which are beyond you know, you know, know, age and race and ethnicity. They get into class and values and even thinking styles and working styles. You know, That was the, the discussion uh, it may be more accelerated for tech firms and other types of firms, public firms, but then the accelerators happen. Uh, speaking of this timeline, these accelerators and catalysts for the last couple of years and recently, you know, the human experience, social justice, obviously Black Lives Matter and other external stakeholders, climate change, politics, and the labor market again, the war for talent. The war for talent has always been central to diversity and inclusion and even ESG these days. And the last thing I'll say about, you know, this this evolution, even the word diversity has evolved. It was diversity, right, for a while. Then it was diversity and inclusion. Now it's diversity and equity and inclusion. And I think the most important way to look at that is, and I, I love the uh, quote from um, a woman named Camille Chang, Chief Diversity Officer at Boston Scientific. Diversity is a given. Inclusion is a choice. And equity is the goal. So hopefully uh, soon we'll be into more measurement and activity and actions around the DEI initiative. 
I like the way that sounds. That's really interesting, Bob. We'll come back to that. But you mentioned business case. And after all, this is about a business imperative. It's about site location, business investment, but business case. Let's dive a little deeper in this issue, if we can, and and talk about how it relates to business interests in com- I, the obviously ones, competitiveness, productivity, and other important factors. Right. Well, there's the business imperative in the business case, many dimensions to that. Certainly demographic shifts and trends have been part of that. The whole issue of uh, how we look at demographics and cohorts, you know, millennials and Gen Z and uh, all the different cohorts of demographics have different thoughts and ideas about diversity. The pace of business, I think is a big part of that too. War for talent has always been part of that. The workplace reality and the workplace experience, the human experience at work, wellness, uh, other factors, they're attached to diversity and inclusion. The global marketplace, we're, we're an increasingly global marketplace. We've been global for decades. So we're working with global clients, global stakeholders, global customers. You know, that means you got to understand diverse ideas, thoughts, cultures. Uh, and then, of course, it is. All of those things are related to productivity and utilization, talent sustainability, and also problem solving. In perspectives and, and and maybe even how all those things impact innovation, culture, and then of course measurement of that. And a couple other thoughts on this. There's things like employer of choice. Many uh, of our my clients want to look at you know diversity, equity, inclusion as a growing element of being an employer of choice. Again, this is about finding the best talent, creating an environment where that that talent can think and problem solve and work together and have an experience uh, that's, you know, sets them apart from the competition and maybe be an employer of opportunity. That might even be different than employer of choice. And lastly, clients want to work with companies, you know, that look like them as an advisor. They want to you know work with people that look like them and reflect their values. Some say company culture embraces diversity and comparison for others imbues a workplace intolerant of hostility. And linear thinking. So I'm getting into some very strategic and soft factors that are very, very important about what diversity is about. And I've been thinking about this for many, many years. The bottom line is there is a bottom line about driving better results, return on investment, return on capital deployed. And maybe there's a new one out there, Rick, in terms of measurements, return on engagement. So I'm I'm not saying I'm an expert on return on engagement. That's floating around with all these new chief diversity officers and people assigned to make sure these diversity initiatives move into action and measurement. You know, Bob, you mentioned this is a big issue. It's finely grained. There's going to be a lot to learn as we go forward with it. But let's go back and unpack a couple of uh, points. You, You mentioned bottom line. Well, the bottom line always takes me. And you also mentioned in your earlier comments about how you've seen it be evolve as a location factor over the last few decades, specifically in the boardroom as companies evolve their points of view on this. Uh, I'd like for you to maybe unpack that a little bit as you've seen how that's evolved. You did mention earlier in an earlier comment, accelerators and catalysts, because you know there's there's got to be a fly in the ointment that kind of starts this evolution or this change. And it seems that these accelerators and catalysts are driving customer and stakeholder interest, which is leading to that boardroom awakening. Is that correct? You know, I think you've captured many of those elements, but it's a giant algorithm with many other, <laughs> I'll call it variables. And, uh, you know, every time I sit down to read more about diversity and equity and inclusion, the more it becomes better defined and there's 
different layers. Even diversity can be defined by industry specialization, you know, credentials, uh, functions. I mean, there's many different layers of diversity. The boardroom you mentioned too is very important. Here's here's an interesting stat. And I just completed a 15-week board of director training program. Diversity now is almost, even in private companies, usually diversity has been more focused on the public boardroom, public corporations for obvious reasons, and then companies that have missions and, uh, you know, around this factor. But now it's it's leaking into the private boards, not-for-profit boards for sure. And uh, the S&P uh, 500, just in 2019, was the last year that there was not one board that did not have a woman on it. So it took until 2019 for us to have the S&P 500 actually not be all male. So some say that's not progress. But again, uh, at, at the board level, there is much more discussion about diversity and ESG and other initiatives and that they do need to come into place. And so that change, I hopefully will be faster and be accelerated. And because of all of these things happening in our society right now, but it's, it's, it's uh, you know, there is progress, but it could be faster. Now, when, when you recognize everything you mentioned, it does impact the location decision. So all these factors are leaking into our location selection algorithm, right? And I just interviewed a company last week, a very prominent company that moved from the Bay Area to Texas. And I talked to the chief people officer. And he brought up the fact that that was part of their decision from the Bay Area to Texas, a part of Texas, where they were allowed to have a broader diversity perspective as they hire in the future versus what they had in the Bay Area. So this was a very interesting factor in the relocation. That's not in the newspaper. It was about incentives in the business climate, lower costs in Texas. So, but uh, yeah, obviously, when you see a chief people officer talk about that, that's what we're seeing right now, too, Rick. It is coming into the board decisions. And location is maybe a weapon. I mean, that's not the right thing to say, but location is a variable now that's going to be attached to diversity more and more as we move forward. Very, very interesting. You know, some of those, as you say, it's the it's the big things, the incentives that get the big attention. But these other, uh, I don't want to, maybe subtle is not the right word, but these other less visible or noted uh, factors are really starting to drive parts of decisions. Let's let's see if we can unpack that a little bit, Bob. Uh, do you have some examples uh, that you, I don't want to get into proprietary areas, but some examples you might share with us about this? Maybe maybe a couple of specific, you said industry specific, you know, the technology industry, the life science industry. What are some examples where you see this evolution occurring? Well, um, I will mention a couple, three examples, and they're fascinating. I, I can't say the company name, but again, I just learned so much and been so encouraged that in each of these clients, they all had a chief diversity officer or a chief people officer or somebody that was evaluating our reports in terms of how we evaluated this issue. So that was really, really interesting. That's never happened to me. I've been doing this for 33 years. In the last three or four years, I've seen that happen occasionally. And I'm wondering if it's going to happen even more again, because of where we're headed with uh, DEI. So uh, one thing that's come up on location factors and the case studies is STEM skills, science, technology, you know, engineering, math. Um, I don't know if you've seen the word, the movie uh, called Hidden Figures. <laughs> so the perspective, this is about the war for talent and getting more people with different backgrounds and perspectives and being open to having people move into STEM from in these locations and places. And so this is now being evaluated 
in terms of how we're populating these these critical skills into the location decisions. A part of it's about labor availability, demographics, you know, quality of the workforce. That factor has never changed. Labor is number one in the boardroom. Now we're adding uh, diversity as one of those sub criteria. And for this client, uh, this was a life science client that was doing their first manufacturing project outside of California, outside of Palo Alto. They went to North Carolina. We evaluated and very, some very interesting variables in terms of um, educational attainment, what's going on in the schools, you know, obviously the whole demographic makeup of the area. And of course, there weren't quotas or anything, but there was a, a, a recognition that we wanted to look at uh, the diversity sub criteria within the demographic profiles that we did. The other one is for, a, you know, a very, very large, you know, tech firm, a global firm with operations all over the globe. They hire us every year to look at their portfolio of real estate and to check things in terms of the, the diversity of that area and if they're making progress because it's part of the mission of the company. So it's a big, uh, as my colleagues would call it, oh, we're doing a labor market study. We did a labor market study, but we had different variables in terms of skill sets, STEM, you know, how, you know, schools, economic development groups, community colleges, universities are working together on this issue, so, which is really interesting. And then the last one I thought is just fascinated, fascinating. I worked for um, a head company headquartered in New York that had a New York brand. And of course, New York has been relocating and carving out, I'll call it back office operations for decades and looking at lower cost solutions. By the way, COVID-19 has accelerated that trend, you know, from some of the tier one higher cost metros to tier two and tier three. The Guild actually noted that in our survey. And for this client was called Project Piano. The finalist locations were Dallas, uh, Charlotte, Atlanta, Nashville. And this was a New York company. And the financials look great. All the typical location algorithm, the cost, the conditions, the financial model, everything looked great. But at the end, the chief diversity officer and HR stepped in and said, wait a second. This is going to be a risk for some of my people who I want to relocate from New York that might have a different perspective about DEI in these places that I listed. Bathroom bill in North Carolina, flag issues, uh, you know, laws being passed. And again, I'm not being political here, but it was brought up in the boardroom and we had to do a study. We had to stack up red, yellow, green, look at these 10 variables and what's going on. So we had to find really interesting sources of this data. The economic developers didn't necessarily have the data. So we had to find comparative data that would actually measure DEI inclusiveness type, type issues, including things like LGBTQ, you know, and how that's recognized uh, legislatively, et cetera, within that state and region. Wow, that's powerful. You know, a couple things come to mind just listening to you talk through this last question. One is you mentioned uh, chief diversity officer. For those of us on the economic development side for the last 30 or 40 years, we've always wondered and wanted to know who are the key decision makers on any given project. Then we look at finance officers and CEOs and all that. So that's a new name. EDOs out there, chief diversity officers. Those are people that are going to start to factor into these decisions uh, going forward if I'm, if I'm believing and hearing what you're saying about that. Uh, I think that's very interesting. So let's take that a little bit and let's talk about the economic developers uh, side of the equation. So how do you see this new uh, interest in diversity and inclusion changing what's really expected from EDOs or the people on the receiving end of your corporate RFIs? 
you you mentioned 10 variables, you mentioned new measures and those things. Do you have thoughts on how this tight labor market is maybe causing cha- those clients to look at talent in different ways? And what are the EDOs need to be doing to respond to that? That's a, I know that's a big mouthful of, of a question, but let's take a run at it. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of great EDOs out there that recognize the importance of this issue under the concept of talent and labor and demographics, some more so than others that might be recruiting firms that have that are more mission aligned with this, tech firms, life science firms. Uh, I mentioned this financial services uh, client. So, um, and then of course, I, I've seen many uh, activities. Uh, I'll point out the Atlanta Chamber, you know, uh, that have actually looked at how they evaluate this issue, the information they have, uh, how we go back and forth on things. Um, you know, do they have affinity groups? Do they have, you know, awareness platforms within the local economic development groups? Uh, so, but it all gets back down to leadership in the communities and how they, again, assess this. Is like a public company, a private company, a not-for-profit, how important it is to them. So if you have an area that's, I guess, not diverse from a typical definition of diversity, it's something you can't change overnight, but you just have to be aware that creating an inclusive, welcoming uh, environment, you know, for new clients that look global and they need to go local, uh, you have to think about all of those elements from pe- people to cost of living to quality of life, even even community uh, attractiveness and placemaking are parts of this to make sure that, uh, you know, the workforce of the future is going to be, you know, considered in, in, in this whole DEI, you know, location factor. You know, what, one thing that I do want to bring up is that um, on the economic development side, um, there are, are, I'm seeing in some of our incentive compliance projects and applications where this topic has come up, there's questions around it. And they ask about, do we, are there initiatives in place for the company that they're attracting? And uh, I'm not going to say which states, but we have seen that come up a couple of times. And, I, you know, I think that's encouraging. I don't say it's a knockout factor for both entities, but they're having a dialogue, right, around this topic and recognizing that it's important to companies and their missions. And it should be for a community and a region also to receive that company and make sure it's a good fit and a good match. That's a the great run through set of factors there from EDO's perspective. You know, there's the old saying about what gets measured gets done. It could be now that how these things get measured determines what you get too. As you look and evolve these new metrics, don't you see these metrics becoming, it's going to take a while for it to all settle down to know exactly how you measure diversity uh, and yeah. how a community can do that. I mean, I mean, you know how to measure electrical power. You know how to, me- there's a lot of things we've learned how to really measure with great specificity, but this is, has been moving from more subjective now to more objective, I think. Do you agree with well, that? Well said. And that doesn't mean that there's going to be legislated metrics, you know, at the public sector level, you know, to receive a company. I don't think we'll see that for a long time, but what we'll need to see is things like platforms and initiatives that prove to a company that you're doing whatever you can to build the right pipeline, bring more people into STEM, you know, build that fundamental base that keeps companies competitive, right? Keeps the, you know, the walls full of wonderful people that allow them to innovate and be competitive and be profitable. This is still about profitability, the business case, right? Um, and then that could be things like, well, how are you working with inner city colleges? Actually, the CEO of our company is working with inner city colleges in the New York area as a source of labor 
traditionally we haven't tapped that. Do, do people go into inner city colleges and make them aware of opportunities? Uh, our economic development groups going to non-traditional places to spend time with people and show them these opportunities. Uh, that could be black colleges, you know, minority areas, inner city areas. Um, so it's the actions, Rick, that I think will go a long way to demonstrate that we're bringing diversity, equity, inclusion together with communities and corporate clients with things like that, as opposed to like, you know, legislative metrics, which, you know, actually might even have the opposite effect. Interesting, because it's going to take a while to get this right as everybody works to figure it out. Uh, correctly. Let's turn back a little bit, though, because you mentioned bottom line earlier and boardroom and what gets the attention of companies. And there are always the big factors like basic cost and basic fundamentals of site selection, you know, the factors that you've always looked at. Despite the evolving importance of these new metrics, those old basics still remain important and they're likely to do so for some time. Is that right? Yes, Rick. You know, after doing this for over 30 years and you know almost 300 times in 20 countries and if I can be as humble as to speak for my my colleagues in the site selectors guild there's still basic fundamentals about critical location factors industry fit supply chain and logistics uh, everything that's going on right around our economy <laughs> the, the, the second the next war for talent sites buildings you know, they're in industrial side, they're disappearing overnight right now. Um, so all of these things enable a business to get in, produce, make product, be profitable, satisfy customers. But within that context, you know, there's just a, an enlightenment and a necessary enlightenment that we have to you know, be more inclusive about the people that can benefit from these site select decisions. And uh, it's only gonna, again, increase increased innovation, and, uh, you know, good broad thought within companies and, you know, allow everybody to experience what's good in our economy and, and what's going to be good economic impact for all stakeholders. So, and again, uh, the boards and the executives really have to drive a lot of this uh, because the employees are going to demand it, if not command it. And um, I think we all can play a role in that. We'll call it bottom line plus. And I hope diversity, equity, inclusion is a big part of that plus. Bob, you've given us a lot to think about. I like that idea, bottom line plus. What a great conversation. But really, that's all the time we have today. So I'd like to say thanks to Bob Hess, Vice Chairman of Newmark, for talking with us today about diversity, equity, inclusion, and the business imperative associated with that on this episode of Site Selection Matters. Thank you, Rick. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Site Selection Matters. And thanks to Bob Hess for helping us get inside and better understand the evolving importance of diversity and inclusion as a business imperative in site location. What an informative discussion and one that leaves us with a lot to think about. Again, I'm Rick Weddle, president of the Site Selectors Guild. This podcast episode presents my views and the views of my guests, and they do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Site Selectors Guild or its membership. We hope you'll subscribe to the Site Selection Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you some great discussions in the year ahead. Until next time, good day.